Welcome to the 122nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the previous encroachment of socialism, the modern encroachment of socialism, and an article talking about what it would be like bringing back the 90% tax for the ultra-wealthy. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, obviously, we live in a society that loves capitalism, but is a new economic system inevitable? Is capitalism meant to die? It seems likely that there's a great new system that is on the horizon. It always is talked about. It's very hopeful. It sometimes seems utopic when we have these conversations or utopian. And to be honest, I think capitalism is a great way to harness the selfish wants and needs of a person or an individual into a system that can benefit the society. But there are, of course, critics. So if it was to die... What would replace it? What would you want to replace it? Let me know in the comment section down below. I'd love to hear all of your thoughts. All right, let's jump to our first story, which comes from FEE Stories. The Russian mathematician who exposed the cannibalistic nature of socialism. So, obviously, if you live in America, you grew up in America anytime earlier than the 2000s, maybe even before 1990. Socialism and communism, evil words. You probably have your mind made up on these issues. Afterwards, you know, we defeated the Soviet Union. It was no longer our dreaded enemy. Their economic system was no longer put up on a pedestal as, oh, this is absolutely evil. Of course, we were taught this in schools. But in our generation, the idea of socialism and communism not really communism as much because of the terrible things that have been attributed to it, the Great Leap Forward, a lot of the prison system that was established under Stalin. Those kind of turn us off from communism, but communism light, socialism, there has been a little bit more love growing in the populace for it for a long time. So that's why I find this story important. And I want to highlight one of the utmost thinkers who was born in the Soviet Union and despised socialism. So let's get to his background. Quote, Growing up in Ukraine under Soviet-imposed socialism, Shavarich harbored misgivings about the system from an early age. In his 30s, he began to run afoul of it because he was outspoken of the support of the Eastern Orthodox faith and officially in an officially atheist empire. He eventually morphed into a full-blown anti-Marxist dissent and an ally of Andrea Shakarov, the physicist famous for defending human rights against the regime's assaults. Despite his world-class credentials in mathematics, Shafarovich was fired from Moscow University because of his collaboration with Shakarov. Shafarovich ranks high in the pantheon of 20th century mathematicians. His name is attached to numerous pioneering theorems and formulas and it, that I can't begin to understand, but which are celebrated as genius among the numerical cognizant. 
1981, he was even inducted into the British prestigious Royal Society of London as one of the biggest foreign scientists ever to grace its membership, end quote. So what I'm trying to highlight here, this is a very smart man. And I'm not trying to say, oh, just because he's smart in mathematics means he understands social sciences or how a society should operate fully. What I am trying to highlight is the fact that he is a person who has gone through the fouls, this system that was imposed upon the Russian people, the Ukrainian people, the people of the Soviet Union, and he was outspoken against it for most of his life. And this is extremely important because as an outsider, if you're an American, you can look at socialism and say, oh, yeah, that's a that's a darn system. That is not how we should operate our country. And it's coming from a capitalistic point of view. And of course, while this may be true, we shouldn't embrace socialism. We are just critics from the outside. Of course, we don't like a system that's not like ours. We don't fully understand it. He was born, raised. He learned in this society and he could see the problems from within it. So I think that speaks even more to why it's a bad system. Now, of course, people could argue that capitalism is not a good system either. There are people that grow up in a capitalistic system and have a very negative view of it as well. And of course, that is a valid, valid critique. But remember here, capitalism hasn't imprisoned millions upon millions of political dissidents just for disagreeing. It hasn't enabled the state control of a large majority of citizens' lives. So, you know, there would be a difference there, even though there are valid criticisms of the economic system that undergird our America, or at least modern America. So let's talk about his famous book, where he really breaks down the problem with socialism. Quote, titled Socialist Phenomenon, it is Shafarovich's most significant and memorable foray outside of mathematics and should rank as a classic in the voluminous defiant critics of socialism. My copy, purchased in 1981, is full of marks and notations where I found insight that I did not want to forget. The first 200 pages of the book surveys socialist ideas and experiments in history, from Pluto in Greece to Egypt China, Mesopotamia, to the Inca civilization in South America. You can read a good rendition of the book's chapters on the Inca here. The Inca nation was short-lived. It couldn't defend itself against a few hundred Spanish. But it may well be the most thoroughly regimented and centrally planned society the world has ever known. In the final third of the book, or about a hundred pages, Shafarovich offers his analysis of socialism. He argues persuasively that at least three components of the socialistic ideal, the ab abolition of prior property, the abolition of the family, and socialist equality, may be deducted from a single principle, the suppression of individuality, end quote. And of course, this is very very interesting, because I was actually chatting with ChatGBT, and of course, I'm not taking ChatGBT as the end-all, be-all of knowledge, but I was having a back and forth talking to him about Marx, and then comparing some of Marx's ideas to John Locke's ideas, and their idea about private property, and how the individual plays into everything, and Locke would frame a lot of his ideas around, yes, you sacrifice something to be a part of a society, but it is in order to better yourself and, of course, make the society 
more profitable. You give up a certain right to drive drunk, per se, and in doing so, you're making society safer, but you're also making yourself safer in doing so. And the socialist system that was born out of the Marxist ideas is you are giving up your individuality for the collective. And there's an interesting dichotomy because Marx says that you should have control over your labor, but in a workplace, if you're outvoted as to how your labor should be used, you have to just go with the collective. So, of course, your labor should be favored. You should have control over it. But at the end of the day, your individuality can be and should be squashed in order to go with what the rest of the group of workers or the rest of the society wants. So Locke is saying you give up a little bit of your self-determination, a little bit of your liberties in order to protect and sustain your other liberties and make the society flourish. Whereas Marx seems to be saying you give up your liberties in order to make the society flourish, even if it's not exactly what you want. And your uh, liberties will come at the expense, or rather will be the building blocks of the society. If you give up your liberties, that's okay, that's good, that's exactly what you should do, because you are more worried about the collective rather than individual liberties. And that's what Shafarovich uh, is pointing out here. And it's a very interesting way to look at things. And it doesn't necessarily vibe or jive, is probably the right word, with the American way of thinking, because we are very individualistic. Maybe if we were all born into a collective society, that would 100% make sense. But it doesn't seem to go that way. And, you know, when I was speaking earlier about some people growing up in systems and not accepting them, it could be that Shavarovich was just a really, you know, independent, libertarian kind of guy. Hey, just get out of my business. And that's why he was so willing to push back against the system. It also could have been his faith, his Eastern Orthodoxy that he held. And he said, hey, you know, I am an Eastern Orthodox member of the church. And I don't like that the state's suppressing my atheist or suppressing my religion, trying to promote atheism. So I'm going to push back and point out some of the issues here, one of which is individuality. So that's why I think that we as Americans have such a hard time with it. And I think it's a valid criticism of socialism. You have to put other people ahead of yourself. And you may be thinking, well, yeah, we want that. Of course we want that. But we do we want the government to force it upon you? Or do you want a system that allows you to do with your money how you please, do with your labor, your efforts as you please in order to help other people rather than it be mandated by the government. You have mandated charity and then you have willing charity. Which one do you want? If you're an American, you'll probably say willing charity. You may even say just no charity. You may not want to give your money to charity at all. And, you know, that is, especially in America and Western countries, that is your right. You don't have to. But in my worldview, if we're going to have a system of giving back to other people in the society, I would prefer to willingly choose where my efforts, time, and money goes rather than the government stepping in saying, no, no, you're going to give $100 to the food pantry that has had systematic corruption and has funneled off some of the money rather than allowing me to give it to the church food pantry that I know isn't funneling off that money. So how is this affecting 
culture? Or how is it affecting modern culture, at least in America? Or can we see little threads of it? And Shavarovich points some things out that I think are important. Quote, individuals participate in life as thinking, acting individuals, not as indistinguishable portions of a collectist blob. Cultural creativity, particularly artistic creativity, is an example, the author points out. Renaissance Italians didn't paint The Last Supper. Leonardo da Vinci did. In periods when socialism movements are on the increase, the call for the destruction of culture is heard ever more distinctly. Shafarovich explains, Socialism is fundamentally anti-culture because it seeks to supplant individual initiative with one-size-fit-all top-down dictates. It centralizes mandates blueprints to ultimate, the ultimate death sentence because, quote, not only people but even animals cannot exist if reduced to the level of the cogs of a mechanism, end quote. And see, that's what he's, what he's getting at, is in this ideal system of socialism, you are an individual who gives up certain aspects of control to the system in order to allow it to prosper and in order to let the society thrive. But in giving up that individuality, in allowing the central planning bureau, the government, to plan the economy, you are actually not just giving up your individuality, you are debasing yourself. You are making yourself just a means to an end, as you may have heard Kant say. You are just a tool to be wielded by the government in order to make society the best that it can be. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. If you have a government, and let's be clear, I'm not trying to say socialism is good, but if you want to be really not really naive about it, let's put it that way, and you want to find a way to support it, that could be okay. It could be okay to be a cog in a machine if that machine is run in an ethical, kind way where you understand those people at the top, understand that, hey, the tools we're using here are human beings. They're not just a small cog for me to fully exploit, but they are a human who is helping me and our society reach a certain ends, and then establishing, okay, because you exist, you are worth something. You innately have value as a human being, and you are a part of the system. You are a tool of the system, but we're going to treat you with dignity. But if you have bad people in government who just want to get to their ends, and they don't care how, and they see you just as a tool to be wielded, then that's where things can go wrong. And I'm sorry to say the first option where you are seen as an individual and a tool to be used is really hard. You know, it's some mental gymnastics to find a way to fully make that realized in government. And also, just to be a little cynical, people like power, governments like power, and they're not always going to do the right thing for their citizens. They're going to try to get to their own ends and do it however they need to, even if that's exploiting other people. Maybe that's a little cynical on my point of view, but I do believe that all people are fallen. And, you know, not necessarily in the religious sense, even though that is where my view is based. I do believe that people are good, but we're always striving to be better because we are flawed in some way, shape, or form. 
And that, to me, is a reality. So giving over all the control to a government authority who may have some good people in it sometimes, but some other times may have bad people, I really don't want to take that risk in a socialist system. But, you know, that's just me. Maybe you have a different opinion. Throw it down in the comment section. I'd love to hear it. So bouncing off of this, we talked about a little bit of the history, and I was trying to compare some of the ideas that were talked about in that final quote with modern, not just America, but the modern idea of socialism and how it could apply, you know, the destruction of culture, something I didn't necessarily touch on, but I feel like that is prevalent here in America. But let's talk about why that is the case. This next article comes from The Daily Caller. The source of Marxist takeover of American institutions is so obvious it hurts, end quote. So you can see where The Daily Caller is coming from here. And if you had to guess, you know, if you've made it this far in, you're probably a, a listener for a long time. If you had to guess what the institutions that they're going to start with are, what do you think they're going to be? If you had to list three of the American institutions, what would they be? Throw them down in the comments section. And if you get it right here in the next few seconds, you know, impressive. And if not, then, hey, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. So let's start here. Quote, it is impossible to deny how far left all of America's institutions have shifted in the past few years. Corporate boardrooms, the media, sports teams, even the military all chant the same dogma and insist that you comply. How did that happen? As Ernest Hemingway wrote on how one goes bankrupt, gradually, then suddenly. Indeed, our leading institutions face a moral bankruptcy unprecedented in American history. This could not have happened without the left's successful long march through the institutions. This term, made famous by radical academics in the 1960s, refers to the strategy used by the new left students of that era. End quote. So he set the ground stage. He's saying all these institutions, they are, they are corrupted. And, you know, corrupted may be a strong word. They are being influenced by people with a certain worldview. And to be honest, I don't necessarily have a outright criticism with that. Just like any institution, any organization is constantly having a battle of worldviews within it, I just think that one worldview has won out a little bit more in most of these institutions. Sports teams, maybe not as much. And the military, maybe superficially. I don't actually know a lot of people in the military to or who are actively serving in the military, so I can't necessarily test this theory. I see lots of articles about it. But, you know, come on. The Republicans or the conservative news media, they're going to point out things that they don't necessarily like and they may make it sound like a bigger deal than it actually is. It could just be a program in place but then a few military members are implementing it, and the rest are like, hey, I don't care. We're not going to let it corrupt. But I do know for a fact that it's happening in boardrooms, and I do know for a fact that it's happening in media. And, of course, it happened in college. I saw it personally in college. Now, am I saying there's a big corruption scheme? They're taking it over. You could see the cabal meeting in the back room. No, but you could see the little touches and influences here and there of a more pervasive left ideology. So if we're talking about universities, or at least I brought the universities up, and that's because it's a beautiful segue into this next talking point, which is one of the greatest, longest-standing American universities and one with a great amount of prestige and name recognition. It's Harvard. And there's a new Harvard study about Harvard internally. Quote, 
A new Harvard study on faculty political leanings reveals that the left's long march was more successful than they would have ever dreamed. A whopping 75% of Harvard faculty identify as liberal or very liberal, while only 2.5% identify as conservative. A minuscule 0.4% identifies as very conservative. As law professor Jonathan Turley points out, these figures massively under overrepresent liberals compared to the social over society overall. Roughly equal proportions of Americans identify as conservative or moderate, while only 26% identify as liberal. More Harvard faculty identify as very liberal, 32%, than Americans overall identify as just liberal. So, hold on, let's do that. So, 36% identify as very liberal at Harvard versus the population of 26% that just says they're liberal in America writ large. Okay, that that's interesting. I just wanted to highlight that again. Let's get back to this last part of the quote. Quote, the figure is representative across large swaths of American academia. In 1969, one in four college professors was at least moderately conservative. Now liberals outweigh conservatives on campus by roughly 12 to 1. End quote. So, that's why I pointed out that the universities are the case. I gave a little personal analogy, and now we're starting to see some data to back up what I was saying. And, you know, it's scary to think about the fact that there aren't too many conservative voices on campuses. And if you're a person from the left, you'll be saying, what do you, what do you mean, Alex? You know, it's a freedom, free institution. They can put whoever they want in there. And if they want to have more liberals than conservatives, go right ahead. The conservatives are saying, of course, Alex, I know you're you're talking right past me. I'm not going to listen. What we want to highlight here and why this is important is because no matter what side you're on, you can't just eradicate the other side from the conversation. Even if you don't like their talking points at all, you have to have a balance. And this is not just going for in your work life, in your friend life. This is not just going for life in general. I'm saying this specifically about academia because academia is the place where we breed ideas. It's where we breed new thinkers. And if everybody, if every single professor you have just says the exact same thing, gives the exact same message or close enough to the exact same message, it's not going to promote new thought or contrary thought to the main thought of the day rather just different forms of that main thought and that is not how we move forward we need to have voices on completely different and opposite sides of the conversation pushing and pulling vying for this student's time allowing them to experiment explore even create new ideas and it's extremely dangerous to just have an echo chamber among your professors and this is why I find it extremely scary. And you can see the effects of having a single dogma that is so pervasive on these campuses when it creeps out into the business world and it rapidly changes the state of our society. It's not like this took 100 years or you know 150 years. It took 45 years more or less to start seeing the ideas in these colleges despoused in the economy writ large. It's scary how effective and fast, and it only escalates and gets further 
down the road because then these parents teach those lessons to their kids. These kids come into college already thinking it, already believing it, and actually pushing the professors to go a little bit further and go further down the rabbit hole. And that doesn't necessarily lead to a more robust, less dogmatic way of thinking. As you probably know, I'm going to point out, it leads to the exact opposite. So I think we're going to get caught in a cycle here if we're not careful. We don't get more conservative voices on campuses and pushing back on this dogma a little bit. So with that said, let's jump to the last article. This one comes from Common Dreams. To save U.S. democracy... Tax the rich at 90%. Whew, that, is a, that is a good headline right there. It grabbed my attention for sure. So this 90% tax rate, it is, Harvard, it is calling back to the time of FDR as president. And in order to understand why it was the way it was then and why this conversation is coming up now, we need to talk about the history a little bit. Quote, the last time we saw the consequences of such inequality during the Republican Roaring Twenties, a hundred years ago, when Harding, sorry, Warren Harding dropped the top income tax rate from 91% to 25%, the morbidly rich openly bought our politicians, and gangs whose names are still known today roamed the country and killed with impunity. Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal put an end to all of that. And we need to repeat his example today. FDR raised the top income bracket from 25 to 90%. Wealthy people in America seemed, screamed and yelled, claiming it would crash the economy. But instead, the top tax rate kicked off the first middle class to encompass more than half a nation's population in world history. End quote. So, of course, you know, we have a lot of love for FDR in our nation. He led us through the Great Depression, through World War II, and, of course, we remember now that he had polio, so it was even more endearing historically looking back. It's like, oh, my goodness, this man was fighting off a deadly disease, and he was still doing everything he could to help his nation. And we have rosy-eyed glasses about it. And he did have a lot of very progressive policies, especially at the time. Now, of course, if you're a conservative, you're probably thinking of the talking point that he actually prolonged the Great Depression by about three years. I've heard this point, and I have not done enough outside research that definitively proves that to me. I also haven't done enough outside research to fin definitively disprove that to me. But it's an interesting conversation nonetheless. The 90% tax on the ultra-wealthy, or not even just the ultra-wealthy. It's just the highest income bracket, which I believe in the United States it's over a million. If I'm wrong about that, it may even be lower than that. But it's, it's very interesting to have this conversation. And I don't necessarily think we're when we look back at FDR and we see his policy and then some of the things that came afterwards, we instantly go, oh, it was all because of FDR and his really progressive policies that this happened. No, there were other factors like Eisenhower's infrastructure deals, some of Lyndon B. Johnson's social safety nets that he put in place, Nixon's more heavy work requirements, things of this nature. There are lots of aspects here that 
build up to the beautiful prospering of the United States. We saw not just one president's progressive policies. And it also goes for Wilson's policies beforehand and Harding and Coolidge's programs before that of deregulation. So obviously we can't just point at FDR and say, oh my gosh, those policies he implemented, those are absolutely perfect. And we especially can't do it nowadays because we're in a totally different era. Not just economically, because, you know, at the end of the day, we do have a lot of really rich people. We also have a more prospering middle class and less people in poverty than we did have at that point. But also because we live in a different era of technology where even the poorest person could use their phone to make something beautiful, a video. They could go out and be a journalist. We have a lot of technology that enables people to do a lot of different diverse things and move up through the American system more rapidly than during his day. So maybe we don't need to take as heavy-handed of an approach, but that's just a very pie-in-the-sky nice idea. So what does the current situation look like, and why are people calling for this 90% tax? And you probably understand why, but let's at least highlight. Quote, Here we are in a situation much like the one that FDR faced when he first came into office in 1933. Homelessness stalks the nation. The morbidly rich individuals own more wealth than the bottom half of America. Gun crime is at Bonnie and Clyde levels. Workers are terrified of their employers who force them to sit through anti-union indoctrination sessions or lose their jobs. To solve this crisis, we must gather and gain the political strength and will to once again raise the top income tax rate to 90%, to overturn the Taft-Hartley Act and restore the right to unionize without indifference, and to strip the poison of big money out of our political system. The morbidly rich will squeal at even the mention of these tried and trusted solutions, just like they did in 1930. They'll warn that this country will collapse or that communism will take over and will become like Venezuela or Cuba. They'll say that the job creators will go on strike, like in an Ayn Rand novel, and make the economy go with them to Gullet's Gulch. So, you know, end quote. So obviously, this is an interesting time that we live in. There are a lot of people who make a crud ton of money. A lot of it isn't realized, and it's in the stock market, and some of those people are still living off loans, like Elon Musk. I believe he still lives off loans because most of his capital is tied up in Tesla or in New Ventures or SpaceX or Twitter. So, you know, he's rich on paper, not necessarily rich in his life. That's probably why he sold his house and went to a little mini living house. But my one question, and I'll leave you with this, If it's a 90% tax rate and you make $10 million, how much do you keep? $1 million. If you make $1 million, how much do you keep? $900,000. So why would anybody want to make more money? Why would anybody want to make that extra $10 million if they know, or extra $9 million if it's going to be stripped of them? It is a law of diminishing returns. The more money you make, the more is stripped from you. How does that encourage anybody to create companies that make more money for them and for their shareholders in order to push the bounds, in order to innovate? You know why we innovate? You know why companies push the bounds and create new technologies? Because they see money in it. They see personal gain. They see societal gain. They see financial gain. And 
I'm not saying that just because we have a really high tax rate, the people that really want to innovate, who see beauty in it and love technology, aren't going to innovate. But you're not going to necessarily have the venture capitalists willing to sit back and sponsor them and put the money into a technology that's not quite there yet or market it to other companies and shareholders because the engineer just loves the machine so much but doesn't understand the financial side. You are disincentivizing a key part of what um, the American system is, does, and has done for a long time that has created lots of wealth, innovation, and beautiful technology that has made our life easier. Do you think Steve Jobs would have made the iPhone and revolutionized how we interact if there wasn't a whole bunch of money in it for him and his company? I, I think you could argue maybe he loved design and technology so much that he wanted to bring it to the masses. Maybe. But there was obviously a yearning for more financial success there. And is 90% tax going to incentivize or decentivize people from that? We'll see. You know, maybe we'll get it implemented and maybe I will just be wrong and all that redistributed money will make everybody so happy. Maybe. I don't know. I am not a fortune teller. I can't tell you what will happen if it does. I just look at it with a little bit of common sense and I don't necessarily agree. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Independent. Baby penguin swims for the first time in an adorable video. So, being around for a baby's first is an amazing thing. Quote, a baby penguin has been filmed seemingly enjoying his first swimming lesson this week. The youngest Humboldt penguin at the Oregon Zoo in Portland was filmed testing the water in a practice pool for the first time while a zookeeper stood nearby for encouragement. End quote. You know, and he got the hang of it pretty darn quickly, I won't lie. Quote, the penguin chick was named Rachia, Ram Echia, which means pebble in Quenquao, the language of Quenquao people of Peru. Humboldt penguins are native to the west coast of Peru and Chile. According to the zoo, young Humboldt penguins begin swimming at around 12 weeks old when they gain their outer feathers. And if you want to see any of the cute videos or photos of Ramchia, or you want to read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the links to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine. And when you're listening to this, it would have been yesterday when I posted the Twitter tirade on Twitter. Twitter-exclusive content, we talked about victimhood. And I had just finished up Vivek Ramaswamy's book, so I wanted to have a discussion about a nation of victims. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.